0: It's probably helpful for us again to notice the shift to the third-person narrative style as we pick up the story at the start of chapter 10. Ezra 10 verse 1 says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of the Lord, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. All right, well, that's third-person narrative, obviously. Ezra did this, Ezra did that. Whereas in Ezra 9, we were looking at first-person narrative. Uh, Ezra 9 verse 1, for example. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said such and such. So obviously that's first-person narrative. The officials approached me. They told me these things. All of chapter 9 is written in the first person. Look at the prayer in Ezra 9 verse 6 and following. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. That's all first person. My God, I am ashamed to lift my face, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. So why the shift from first person to third person narrative in chapter 10? The answer is probably that chapter nine is lifted more or less intact out of Ezra's personal memoirs from this trip. I mentioned earlier that scholars assume that the primary sources for the story include the personal memoirs of both Ezra and Nehemiah, supplemented by other legal and historical documents, and then compiled, put together by a final editor, usually called the Chronicler, who may have been Ezra himself, may have been a, a staff person, an associate of Ezra, we don't know, doesn't matter. But the point is there's no effort made to hide these sources when they appear in the story. In fact, they seem to be intentionally foregrounded as if we're meant to notice them and and to appreciate that these are first-hand accounts. The editor wants us to understand that he didn't just create this prayer as a narrative device. He inserted it from the personal memoirs of Ezra himself. That that adds a certain sense of authenticity and even intimacy to these narratives. So what we have in chapter 9 is first-hand recollections of that incredible day. We have, we have Ezra's inner monologue. We have Ezra's passionate prayer. And then here in chapter 10, we are told about the effect that Ezra's passionate prayer had on the assembled people of Israel and the process of reform that came about as a result. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children, gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. Let's just pause here. Ezra is praying and making confession and weeping and casting himself down before the house of the Lord. This is a very public display and intentionally so. Now, some of us might be inclined to criticize this as as a form of performance art, but there's nothing wrong with what Ezra is doing here. A public display is only inappropriate if it says something incongruent with the authentic inner state of the preacher or prophet's heart. But that's not the case here. What's happening externally is in perfect alignment with Ezra's inner emotional and spiritual turmoil. You know, people used to criticize George Whitfield for his dramatic and emotional appeals in his preaching. They said that he was no different, really, than a well-trained theatrical performer. He was an actor. But Whitfield defended himself against those accusations. He said there was a significant difference. And, and the difference was that he believed in absolutely everything that he was saying. An actor doesn't, but he did. And, and that's the same thing we're seeing here. Ezra believes this. He's not acting, he is manifesting. He is legitimately aghast at the sinfulness and short sightedness of these actions. And so he, he calls upon every tool in his toolbox to impress upon the people the error of their ways. He weeps, he prays, he casts himself down on the ground, he, he tears his clothes, he does a bunch of things that no one would ever associate with a, a very well-educated, well-positioned Persian government official. But by doing those things, Ezra attracts a lot of attention. He it attracts a crowd. And the crowd is affected, according to these verses, they begin to weep and to pray and to repent as well, which is exactly what Ezra intended. Pick up the story at verse 2. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Ezra's approach here, in terms of demonstrating the correct attitude towards blatant disregard for the word and will of the Lord, has had its intended effect. The people have fallen under conviction. A spokesperson comes to the foreground and gives voice to the turmoil of the people. It would appear that Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, is in fact a man ideally positioned to respond here. If we consult the list of the returnees in the first wave provided in chapter 2, it would appear that Shekhaniah was from a family that was part of that first wave. And it is those first wave families that have engaged in these destructive practices. If we look further down in chapter 10, we don't see his name among the list of offenders. So he has a connection to the issue, but he has the integrity necessary to step forward and speak on behalf of the group. Now, his proposal is fairly radical, and we should notice that it is his proposal, not Ezra's. Ezra made it clear that this was an absolute disaster, but he didn't actually say what should be done about it, and there is some wisdom in that. These people have been living in the land now for 80 years. They have their own leadership structures. Now, here comes this fancy Persian official, and let us not forget that Ezra was a Persian official. He was a well-educated student of the Jewish law, but he was also an official of the Persian government. And so here comes Johnny Come Lately in terms of the challenges being faced by these exiles. It would probably be unwise for him to be the one to put forward a proposal as severe as this. So he puts the issue on the table. He, he sort of establishes the emotional significance and then he pulls back, as it were, to let the local leaders suggest an appropriate course of action. And they do. Shechaniah proposes that there should be a wholesale covenant renewal ceremony associated with an act of costly repentance involving the putting away of all foreign, foreign. wives and their children. Now, remember, these people have been in the land for 80 years. So, we're talking about more than a few women with nursing infants on their hips. We're, we're talking about a community purge. Grandmothers and cousins, aunties, wives, children of all ages are going to be caught up in this process. I makes the proposal, but then he, he bounces back to Ezra. He says, you have the authority to do this, and the local leaders are here to back you up. And of course, in that statement, he's exactly right. According to chapter 7, Ezra does have the legal authority to enact these sorts of measures. His letter of commission contains these very strong words declared by King Artaxerxes. Verses 25 to 26 of Ezra chapter 7 say, And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the province beyond the river, all such as know the laws of your God, and those who do not know them you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment, close quote. So Ezra was told to teach and impose the law of God upon the people of Israel living in the land of Judea. He was fully authorized to set up courts and to execute judgments. So he has the authority to do this. But he is wise enough to know that he needs the support of the local leaders at ground level to pull it off. So he's walking a very fine line here. Shekinah encourages him. He lays out the basic aspects of the plan. And he says, now you do it. (laughs) Be of good courage. We are with you. So with that encouragement, Ezra binds the local leaders with an oath to support him in this undertaking. We pick up the story at verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. So here we see that Ezra's private grief was in perfect harmony with his public display. It wasn't feigned. It was real. He, he felt very keenly the danger the community had placed itself in. And no doubt, he felt as well the weight of what they were proposing to do. Families would be torn apart. Marriages would be ended. Children would grow up without a father. He was affected by that, as, well, he should have been. Nevertheless, a course of corrective action had been chosen, and Ezra followed through on it. A message was sent out summoning all the Israelite men to an inquiry. Attendance was not optional. Ezra reminds people that he has the full authority of the Persian government to confiscate property and to disestablish any individual who refused his summons to these proceedings. We pick up the story at verse 9. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. The terms Judah and Benjamin appear to be functioning here in a geographical sense. These were the tribal territories around Jerusalem, which appears to be where the bulk of the exilic community had clustered and established themselves. So the word went out in these regions, and the men gathered in the square before the temple. It was December, though, wintertime, so it was cold and rainy, and thus a very somber and subdued assembly. Verse 10, And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many. And it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Azahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, supported them. Ezra's speech in this section is very brief, no doubt owing, at least in part, to the weather. He states the matter succinctly, and he calls upon the people to acknowledge their guilt and to enact the plan proposed by Shechaniah. Verses 12 to 14 provide a summary of what was probably a very lively discussion and debate. The men agree that a serious sin has been committed and that the plan proposed by Shekinah is the appropriate course of action for them to take. However, there are a significant number of cases to be considered, and looking at those cases will consume a great deal of time, and it would be inappropriate for those cases to be rushed merely because of the inclement weather. And thus a more protracted approach is suggested. The people should come to Jerusalem on some sort of rotation, with their local leaders accompanying them to give witness and testimony on their behalf. The proposal makes sense to the majority of the people. However, verse 15 notes that it was opposed by Jonathan, the son of Azahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, and that they were supported in their opposition by Meshullam and Shabbatai the Levite. Now, most of us assume that their opposition was to the harshness of the original plan. Uh, Maybe they had married foreign wives and they didn't want to give them up and they just thought this was all too severe. But actually, the majority of scholars and commentaries that I've consulted suggest the exact opposite. It appears that what they opposed was the revision to the original plan. They wanted to deal with things in a more direct and rigorous fashion They are, in that sense, hardliners. They they don't want to hear stories. They don't want to dig deeper. What what is there to see? What is there to discover? Either you've done this or you haven't, so let's settle everything right here, right now. Let this serve as a reminder that all who aspire to leadership in the covenant community should expect opposition from both sides, (laughs) from those who Who want to compromise on morality and also from those who who want to proceed without any compassion or nuance whatsoever. A wise leader must steer the course between, and must be prepared to absorb insults and attacks from every side. Regardless, a sensible plan was enacted, and procedures were put in place to ensure that everyone gets a fair hearing, and that the ultimate objective is achieved with as little collateral damage as humanly possible. We pick up the story in verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So Ezra establishes a tribunal, and we're reminded, of course, that he was given authority to do that very thing by King Artaxerxes. He chose senior, reliable men to inquire into each instance of alleged inappropriate marriage and to render judgments on his behalf. It took them nearly three months, 75 days to be exact, which means that they handled slightly less than two cases a day based on the report we are given at the end. Now, it's possible that many of the alleged cases were dismissed, so perhaps it would be better to say that they found guilty less than two individuals per day. But either way, the slow, deliberate pace indicates the care and the depth of the inquiry. Once it was completed, the list of offenders was published, and it began with the leaders of the community. We read about that beginning now in verse 18. Now, there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. Maaseiah, Eliezer, Jerib, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Josedek and his brothers, they pledged themselves to put away their wives, and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. Of the sons of Immer, Hanani, and Zebediah. Of the sons of Harim, Maaseiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, of the sons of Pashur, Elioni, Maasai, Ishmael, Nathanel, Josabad, and Elasa. Now, I think it necessary to take note of the fact here that the Bible makes no effort whatsoever to whitewash the sins of leaders. The Bible tells the story of King David's adultery with Bathsheba. It tells the story of Abraham's embarrassing compromise with Hagar and Judah's disgusting encounter with Tamar. If the Bible was truly the product of the church, as opposed to being ultimately the product of the Holy Spirit, then none of those stories would ever have been preserved. And certainly this story here in Ezra chapter 10 would not have been preserved. It is embarrassing. The incident rate of improper marriage is actually slightly higher by percentage among the priesthood than it is among the general population. That's embarrassing. And furthermore, it extends even into the family of the high priest. Some of the sons of Jeshua, the hero of the story from the first half of the book, one of the main leaders alongside with Zerubbabel, that Jeshua, his family is hip deep in the story of sin and compromise. And the Bible faces that reality head on. Now, let me just pause and pull out a very important application. I want to notice two aspects of this reality. First of all, let's notice that there is no warrant in Scripture for whitewashing the sins of our spiritual heroes, or of leaders of any kind, when leaders' sin needs to be dealt with. In fact, as here, it needs to be dealt with Firmly. These leaders are publicly called out and they are required to make a level of restitution that is not mentioned as accompanying the same sins and the same forms of repentance associated with the members of the laity. So, as the Apostle Paul says in speaking about the elders of the church in 1 Timothy 5 20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Leaders who persist in sin, need to be rebuked. If their sin was public, then the rebuke needs to be public and restitution needs to be made. So that's the first aspect of this issue we need to acknowledge. But notice as well that there was a significant process involved in determining that guilt. We may mention of the fact that some people opposed this process, but thanks be to God, the majority insisted that this be done in a thorough and exhaustive manner. That principle, too, is reaffirmed in the New Testament. Again, in 1 Timothy 5, the Apostle Paul says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19 So, let there be a thorough inquiry. And if sin is reliably established, then let it be dealt with severely. Brothers and sisters, we absolutely must insist on both halves of this terrible but necessary process. As long as there are sinners in positions of leadership in the church, i.e., until the Lord Jesus returns to visibly and physically rule over all things to the glory of the Father, until that happens, we must insist on due process and high standards. And we can't live with one without the other. They have to go together. I fear that having come out of a long season of sinfully low standards, when when we let gifted leaders get away with far too much in the church of Jesus Christ, we're now falling into the ditch on the other side of the road and treating every accusation as if it is established truth. My friends, we're not going to have any leaders left in the church if we go too far down that road. If you can ruin a leader's life and ruin their reputation just by writing an email to the local newspaper or by sending a tweet out on your mobile phone, then who in their right mind is going to step forward to provide leadership in the church? No, there there has to be a high standard of evidence. And there has to be a thorough and diligent inquiry as there was here. And if guilt is established, then as was done here, That guilt needs to be acknowledged before the community and every possible and appropriate form of punishment and costly restitution needs to be made. This is is the painful price we have to pay in every generation if we want to preserve our integrity and our witness in the world. We pick up the story in verse 23. Of the Levites, Josabad, Shimei, Kaliah, that is Kalita, Pathahiah, Judah, and Eliezer, of the singers, Eliashib, of the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telum, and Uri. Now we notice right away that there are far fewer cases to be found among the Levites than among the priesthood, which again reminds us that high office and admirable character do not as often go together as we should like. The list of offenders among the laity begins in verse 25. And of Israel, of the sons of Perosh, Remiah, Isaiah, Melkijah, Mijamin, Eleazar, Hashabiah, and Baniah, of the sons of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah, of the sons of Zatu, Eleoni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Aziza. Of the sons of Bebai were Jehonan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athli. Of the sons of Bani were Meshulam, Malak, Adiah, Jeshub, Sheel, and Jeremoth. Of the sons of Pehath-Moab, Adna, Kelel, Baniah, Maasiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Benui, and Manasseh. Of the sons of Harim, Eleazar, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Shimeon, Benjamin, Malak, and Shemariah. Of the sons of Hashem, Matani, Matata, Zabad, Eliphelet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimai, Of the sons of Bani, Maadai, Amram, Uel, Baniah, Badia, Kelui, Benaiah, Meramoth, Eliashib, Mataniah, Mataniah, Jaasu. Of the sons of Benui, Shemai, Shalemiah, Nathan, Adai, Macnadabai, Shashai, Sherai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. Of the sons of Nebo, Jel, Mattathiah, Zabad, Zabina, Jaddai, Joel, and Ben Ai. All these had married foreign women, and some of the women had even born children. Now, most of your Bibles will have a text note indicating that the closing words of the book of Ezra, as recorded in verse 44, are somewhat garbled. F. Charles Fencham says here, verse 44 says literally, all these had married foreign women, and there was from them women, and they put children. Close quote. So as I said, that's a garbled sentence fragment and we're not entirely sure what to do with it, it probably means that they put both the women and the children away. That was part of the plan originally proposed by Shekinah in verse 3. So that seems to be the outcome of this entire episode. They did an inquiry, and we assume that not everyone who went through the inquiry process was found guilty. In some cases, the marriage would have been deemed legitimate. It was possible, of course, for a foreign woman to convert and to become a member of the Jewish community. Ezra 6 verse 21 mentions that some people from the surrounding people groups, the old pre-exilic Jewish stock that had basically apostatized and been absorbed by other cultures, and and even some of the mixed-race Samaritans, they could repent and convert and be recognized as members of the community. And so We presume that some of these marriages were accepted on that basis. No doubt that is why the local tribal leaders were asked to accompany each of the accused men. They could speak on behalf of the wives. They could say, sister so-and-so is a real believer. She converted. She worships Yahweh faithfully and teaches her children to do the same. You see, the issue here was never about race. It was about religious purity. If you are a Jew and you marry a woman who worships the gods of the Persians or the gods of the Babylonians or the gods of the Canaanites, then you have basically decided to throw your children to the wolves, spiritually speaking. That was the issue. And so this was the remedy. Now, nobody really enjoys a story like this, and some even question whether it can be approved on biblical grounds. But as unpleasant as it is, it does conform with the existing laws about divorce in the Old Testament. H.G.M. Williamson says here, divorce is permitted under certain circumstances by Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, and some elementary procedures are laid down. Possibly, therefore, under the influence of Ezra's teaching, the husbands now regarded the foreign origins of their wives to constitute something unseemly, shameful, close quote, and so felt justified in proceeding to a divorce if those procedures were followed, then at least the wives would have been free to marry again. Closed Now, there was a quote inside that quote, as Williamson referred to words from the law in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, to show that what happens here in Ezra 10 is not opposed, is not out of line with the law that exists in the Old Testament, as stated in Deuteronomy 24, 1-4. Others wonder, though, whether this conforms to the New Testament teaching on divorce. After all, Jesus raises the bar, as it were. Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 9 says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So certainly within the church, we must acknowledge that there, there is a very high bar when it comes to divorce. As Jesus also said in Matthew 19, in verses 4 to 6, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the biblical ideal here is for two people to come together in covenant marriage and to maintain that covenant before God until death parts them. The apostle Paul, operating under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, provides a further exception to that general rule. He says, and I'm reading from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 12 to 15, he says, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace, closed quote. So here, the Apostle Paul imagines a scenario in which a husband comes to Christ having already married an unbeliever. They were were both pagans. They were both unbelievers when they got married. But then one of them now has come to faith in Christ, what should be done. In such a case, Paul says, the believer is not to seek the divorce, but if the unbeliever wishes it, then the divorce is not to be opposed. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, or as the NRSV has it, in such a case, the brother or sister is not bound. Not bound, of course, refers to the freedom to remarry, as the Pillar Commentary explains. In Stone Brewer explains here, the only freedom that makes any sense in this context is the freedom to remarry. All Jewish divorce certificates, and most Greco-Roman ones, contain the words, you are free to marry any man you wish, or something very similar, Close quote. So that's actually fairly parallel to what we're seeing here in Ezra 10. There does not appear to be any significant incongruence between what we see in the Old Testament and what we see in the New. This is a tragedy either way and it is a reminder to us that marriage matters. If you are a believer and you intend to raise your children in the Word and in the ways of God, then marry another believer. It is really hard to put the toothpaste back in the tube. It will always be messy and it will never be perfect. So do it right from the start. Now, as for the book of Ezra, this painful episode brings it to a close. However, as I mentioned, in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Nehemiah carries straight on from here, presenting a unified story of the rebirth and renewal of the covenant community in the original land of promise over the course of these three waves. And in that story, Ezra once again will play a prominent role. Reformation is painful work, my friends, but sometimes you have to tear down with one hand in order to build up with the other. But it's worth it, because unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the end of the word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca.